Hello, and welcome to episode 87 of the Talk Witchcraft podcast. In this episode, Maggie and I will be sharing stories about Aphrodite, Venus, and Freya or Frigg, the Greek, Roman, and Norse counterpart goddesses. You're listening to Talk Witchcraft. On this podcast, we talk about witchcraft as a lifestyle and discover how to merge magic into your daily life. Every week, we'll demystify witchy topics like tarot, astrology, crystals, herbs, and more as you develop your personal brand of magic and create the life of your dreams. We're We're your hosts, hosts, the Mystic Mystic Sisters, Sisters, Erica and Maggie. In this segment of the show, we choose a tarot card for the week, and we look for moments that relate to this card in our daily lives. For this episode, we chose Temperance, which represents moderation and harmony. In the traditional Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, the card is represented by an angel or winged figure who's holding two cups or chalices that are filled with water and is pouring one into the other. This imagery implies a need to temper emotions and desires in order to achieve balance in our lives. Temperance can also be seen as a reminder to take time for contemplation and reflection before acting on an impulse or an emotion. This card can represent reconciliation, compromise, and cooperation as we progress towards unity and understanding between different groups of people. Perhaps most importantly, it suggests that we take time for introspection to step back from situations that have arisen in order to gain clarity of thought and determine the best way forward for all concerned. When this card appears in a reading, it is often interpreted as an invitation to practice patience and tolerance in both ourselves and in others, so that we may eventually find harmony within ourselves and with those around us. So Maggie, do you have a story about finding the middle ground between two extremes? It's kind of an interesting card because so much of our lives are so polar in everything. You know, if you think this way, then you must hate this thing. It's like that tweet that's the internet is the only place where you could say, I I love pancakes and somebody would come in and say, oh, so you hate waffles then? Mm-hmm, yeah. It's like, no, that's a whole other sentence. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much I feel like that is very like polar that if you believe something, then you have to be all in on that belief and it's like your whole personality and if you don't always support that thing then you're actually the devil or whatever there's also the meme of the two guys looking at the number written on the ground and one is like saying it's a six and the other one's saying it's a nine both of them from their perspective are correct but you have to take a step back away from it because one of them is actually right You have to look at the context. Are there other numbers around it? Is there a string of numbers that might put it in place? Is it like between a five and a seven or is it between the eight and the zero? Are there any indicators that you might be incorrect? Which is also part of the temperance card that it's like, sometimes you can meet in the middle, but sometimes you are right (laughs) or you are Mm -hmm. wrong. Right. Well, and it goes with the whole idea of I don't want to meet a Nazi in the middle. A step closer to a Nazi means that I'm a step closer to being a Nazi. Right. I don't want to go. I don't want to meet in the middle. And I am right in that belief. (laughs) Yeah, there's certain things where I think that's part of what causes the polarity that we're experiencing, especially in the political arena, is just there's certain things that you can't compromise on. And a lot of those have to do with human rights that you can't compromise on someone's right to be alive Mm -hmm. and to be who they are. 
and to live the way they want, so long as they aren't hurting anybody else. A lot of the people who are more authoritarian, Nazis, that kind of side of the spectrum, they want to compromise. But in order to make a compromise, it's like, okay, but that means that gay people can't exist and people of color can't exist and trans people can't exist. And that's not a compromise that I'm willing to make. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if I have to explain why you need to be nice to people, then we can't even begin to have a conversation. Because right. like that should be a fundamental truth that humans are valid and they have a right to exist. And the existence of a person is not up for debate. Right. So I don't know if I have like a specific story I want to tell, but I feel like this is a good conversation of it. I'm wondering if maybe we don't necessarily have to tell a specific story, but just like have this conversation about what temperance is. I guess one specific story I'll tell is that I've been watching a lot of content from a creator. I can't remember her exact channel name, but her name is Naomi. She like has a call-in show where she lets people come in and she has very, she has like topics that she's willing to debate with people. And she's a trans woman. And so a lot of her topics are generally surrounding like trans issues. You know, she's always using real scientific studies and things that have been tested and proven and retested as the source for her argument. So she's willing to do that, that arguing with people who don't fully understand what it means to be trans. So she does that like emotional labor. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of times people come away from the show just being like, okay, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. And of course, from her perspective, it's like, you're disagreeing with my right to be a person. (laughs) But there have been times where people have come away from the conversation, actually having like taken a piece of what they've learned, like they were at least willing to open their mind a little bit. And one guy actually, he came away realizing that he was uh, bisexual. And he had come in being like very anti-gay, anti-trans in general. And then she helped him realize that he's actually bi, (laughs) which I thought was really funny. Or maybe not funny, but just like interesting. I feel like the way that she approaches things is very temperance, though. She's so like level-headed. She doesn't get worked up about things, even though people are like literally attacking her humanity. But she's very evenly pouring the cup of her knowledge into their empty cup of lack of knowledge and hoping that something sticks. So I don't know. I guess she's she just reminds me of this card. Maybe this is a good story, too. There's a trend about, have you heard the fish song? If I were a fish and I caught you, I'd say, look at that fish. If I were a fish and you caught me, you'd say, look at that fish. There's that trend going around right now. It's all about taking a different perspective. Shimmering in the sun, such a rare one, can't believe And in particular, they're talking about weight and your physical appearance and that as a human, we disvalue larger people. If we caught a large fish, it would be such a great triumph. If I were a fish and you caught me, you'd say, look at that fish, heaviest in the sea. And so that's what the perspective of that song is. And so I feel like that's the temperance moment as well. That introspection of like, why do I feel this way about larger humans compared to larger fish? I think that is an interesting way to look at the temperance card too, is that it's also about analyzing the reason that we think the way we do and where those ideas come from and whether those are beliefs that we want to hold on to. Like taking that time to really reflect on that. Why is everybody on the internet? 
the biggest takeaway for the temperance card with me is the taking a step back and looking at everything in context and being willing to compromise when it's necessary but having the perspective to know whether you're right wrong or there's a meeting place in the middle because there are things that can be compromised on the way that the dishwasher is loaded (laughs) I have a way that I like to load it and it's the way that the dishes fit the best and they all get clean and the best way (laughs) and Dana has a way that he likes to load it which is whatever's fastest to get the dishes off the counter the most efficient way so he thinks that his way is the best way and so sometimes whoever's loading the dishwasher is the one that gets to decide yeah (laughs) and that's the compromise so let's move on to our main theme for today which is talking about these goddesses of love from various pantheons So Erica's going to start by telling us about Aphrodite and Venus. Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love and Venus is her Roman counterpart. Aphrodite has a very interesting origin story. She arose from the sea, but quite literally because Kronos's penis was cut off by his son, Zeus, and thrown into the ocean where it mingled with the sea foam and outsprang Aphrodite slash Venus. So does that mean her father is Poseidon? No, her father is Kronos. Because it's his penis. Because it's his penis. (laughs) I was going to say that with Freya, her father is Njord, who is the counterpart to Poseidon. So I thought that was an interesting parallel, but it's not the truth. It's not the truth, unfortunately. Let me let me double check, though, on who her so-called father is. Oh, no, I had it backwards. It's the severed genitals of Uranus after his son Kronos threw it into the sea. Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I say Uranus? <laughs> yeah. Which okay. is funny because we're talking about penises. <laughs> Okay, back to Aphrodite. Yes. So there's a little like discrepancy on. So it could be that her parents are Zeus and Dione, according to Homer, or it's Uranus, according to Hesiod. I happen to really like the story of her sprouting from seafoam and penis juices, which is gross, but fabulous. <laughs> is that why that's called semen? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> That's her origin story, which is just great and delightful. Her most famous story is the golden apple and Paris' choosing of the most beautiful goddess between Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite. He, of course, chose Aphrodite, and his reward was the love of Helen of Troy, which then led to the Trojan War. And so Aphrodite was the patron goddess of Troy during that conflict. So I'm going to go more into the depth of this story in a later episode because I want to tell this story about Aphrodite, which is the inspiration for my favorite musical. There was a man named Pygmalion who was an amazing, amazing sculptor, and he sculpted a statue of a woman that was the most beautiful sculpture of a woman that there ever was. 
And he fell in love with his sculpture and was so sad that his sculpture was not real because he loved it so dearly. So he prayed to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and she took pity on him and made the statue real. And they lived, I'm going to say, a wonderful, happy life, which is not true because they never live <laughs> wonderful, happy lives. But this is the story that became My Fair Lady. The moral or lesson to be learned is that you shouldn't fall in love with the things that you create because they get ideas of their own and they think of things that they want to do. And then they eventually leave you. And in the story of My Fair Lady, she comes back, but that is not actually how it happens in the story of Pygmalion. She goes off to do her own things and learn about life and love and liberty and not being a statue. Yeah, we just watched My Fair Lady. My husband and I, we were very disappointed that she came back to Henry Higgins at the end. She could have gone off and done so many better things. And in the original script for the play, she doesn't come back. And the original viewers of the play were very upset by that. So they changed it. Because a woman can't be on her own an independent running a flower shop, she has to have a man tell her what to do. So, you know, basically all of Aphrodite's stories deal with people falling in love because she's the goddess of love. Her son, the Roman equivalent is Cupid and, you know, his arrows pierce the hearts of those who would fall in love. And those stories often delve into somebody getting hurt or killed or going insane. In the case of Medea, her love turned to hate. So it's all, it really all of her stories look at the various forms of love and how they can be a good thing, but then also how they can become tragic and awful things if we get too wrapped up in it. So I think it's all, it's kind of a lesson in like fall in love. Love is great, but also keep your own identity, keep the things that you love, keep yourself as an individual and don't become so obsessed with the one that you love. I was actually just listening to a a different podcast that we did in the last tour season where we were talking about how love can be multiple things. Like love is also involved with heartbreak and love is involved with grief in addition to just what we know of as love like friendship and romance and all that listen to that episode if you want (laughs) great (laughs) and then I'll just finish with there's a story that depicts the the actual moment in time where Aphrodite transitions into Venus in the Roman tradition so Aphrodite she's married to Hephaestus which is the smith god but that was a forced marriage by Zeus because he was really upset that she was so beautiful and all the men loved her so he kind of wanted to tie her away but that didn't stop Aphrodite no 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 (laughs) so one of her lovers was Anchises who was a mortal man who was just as beautiful as Aphrodite was and they had a whirlwind love affair and she became pregnant and because the gods don't raise mortal children he was given to Anchises Anchises I'm not sure how to say it exactly A-N-C-H-I-S-E-S that son was Aeneas and we know the story of Aeneas from the Roman myth of the Aeneid in that Aphrodite is called Venus and so it's this very direct transportation from 
that Greek mythos to the Roman mythos. Very smooth, I think. Look at the word of love or desire. Venus is the Latin word meaning love, particularly sexual love or desire. And it also links to the verb venerari, which means to love or to revere, which is the root of the English word venerate. Unfortunately, Aphrodite means of the sea or sea foam. So she doesn't have a link to love unless you love the sea i guess that word has kind of taken on the idea of love even if the root wasn't necessarily like now when you think of aphrodite you just i always think of the pink goddess from hercules obviously exactly. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well and what's also interesting is one of her love affairs was with hermes their copulation led to a androgynous human who had both sex organs, which is the root of our word for hermaphrodite, which is not a very nice word anymore, but that's where it comes from. Right. Now we would say intersex. It's a blending of both of their names, Hermes and Aphrodite. Oh my gosh, that's cool. I'm enjoying listening to this about Venus and Aphrodite because the parallels between her and Frigg or Freya are very interesting. And one thing that I think is interesting about Frigg and Freya is that it's unclear whether they are distinct goddesses or simply these are two different names for the same person. In my opinion, this is the same goddess, and I'm going to tell you why I think that. Frigg is the highest ranking of the Aesir goddesses. She's the wife of Odin, the leader of the gods, and the mother of Baldur. And for a goddess of such a high position, it is surprising that the only surviving primary source on Norse mythology doesn't have more information about her, her personality, the activities that she did. The specifics surrounding these and other attributes are not unique to Frigg, though. They are the same as those personality traits and behaviors that are attributed to Freya. Both goddesses evolved from the earlier Germanic goddess Freya, F-R-I-J-A, but in German, the J is pronounced like a Y, so it's, I have to spell it so that you know that I'm not saying just Freya. <laughs> But by the time we got to the Viking Age, when the sources are recorded, Frigg and Freya were distinct in name only, or at least any of differences between them are superficial. For example, there are some scholars who differentiate them by suggesting that Freya is the more pr promiscuous one and Frigg is the more nurturing one, more similar to like Hera type of goddess in the Greek mythology. However, both goddesses are, are accused of infidelity on multiple occasions in the stories where they're named differently. And then another difference is the spelling of Odin's name when referring to the husband of Freya or Frigg is sometimes different, but that could be argued that it's due to the alternative identities that Odin often used when he was traveling outside of Asgard. Guard. To go with this, often we see goddesses and gods having different spellings because there was no uniform writing system. Right. It's just like the sounds that those letters make. Right. And I would also equate it to the Christian God who goes by Elohim and Yahweh. And the Christian God has a lot of different names too. So yeah, very true. So one other thing that's interesting, I talked about this when we were talking about Mars and Tyr in the Germanic language, that goddess Freya, who I mentioned before, is where we get the word Friday in English, Freya day. And then if you look at the French word for Friday. It's Vendredi, the root of Venus, you can see. So we're seeing these correlations taking place between Aphrodite or Venus and Freya. But Freya is also the origin for the word Frau or Fräulein, which in German means Mrs. or Miss in English. 
And they also could mean lady, like that's a frau over there, that's a lady over there, or wife, this is my frau, my wife. This can indicate that Freya is the ultimate manifestation of a lady and a wife, and specifically the wife of the king of gods, Odin. And then if we look at what Frigg means, the root of this word is closely linked to a word which means beloved, and that's connected to the areas of life that Freya is said to rule over, which is love and desire and beauty. So all of it is connected, and hopefully I've convinced you that these two are ultimately the same goddess, and from here on out, I'm going to use the name Freya for simplicity, instead of saying Freya and Frigg, or Freya or Frigg, or whatever, we're just going to call her Freya. <laughs> all right, so as I mentioned, Freya is most famous for her fondness of love, fertility, beauty, and fine material possessions, so there's a similarity with Venus or Aphrodite. She is often portrayed as the party girl of the Aesir. For example, in one of the Eddic poems, Loki accuses Freya of having slept with all of the gods and elves, including her brother. But Freya is more than simply a passionate seeker of pleasures and thrills. She is the goddess who is thought to have brought magic to the gods and in turn to humans. She was an expert in controlling and manipulating the desires, health, and prosperity of others that she came across. And this is through a practice called Seder, which is the most organized form of Norse magic. She is the archetype of the vulva. Yes, vulva. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which in the Viking Age was a seer and a sorceress who traveled around practicing Seder in exchange for compensation, such as lodging or food or other things. Vulvas, and I should say it's spelled V umlau O L V A S, and umlau is the two dots that you see above letters sometimes. So it's not spelled like vulva, but it's pronounced like vulva. <laughs> <laughs> so vulvas, including Freya, were treated with a mix of longing and desire, scorn, celebration, and fear, uh, just like many witches-type people throughout history. That is kind of how this type of person is treated. And then another feature of Freya is that she presides over Folkvang, which is the realm of the dead. She's generally considered softer and gentler than the other Norse gods and goddesses, but she does have this darker side, a lust for blood, and this connection with death. So now a couple stories. I have a few stories, but I'm not, I, I'll tell one in full and then I'll give a kind of a summary of a couple others. There aren't many stories where we see Freya, as I said before, and there's even fewer where she's a featured character. So there's stories where she is seen making peace, where she's helpful and generous, but because we're talking about the goddesses of love in this episode, I'm going to share a story which highlights Freya's sex appeal and desirability. So this story comes from Thrymskutha, which is of the Poetic Edda, and in it, Freya is coveted by the giants and is involved in a case of mistaken identity. Though Freya's not in the story much at all, it does showcase her desire to defend her reputation and good name. The tale begins with Thor waking to find that his hammer, Mjolnir, is missing. To help him find it, Loki asks Freya for her cloak made of falcon feathers, which gives anyone who wears it the ability to fly, which she agrees to give him. Loki puts on the cloak and he flies to Jotunheim, the realm of the giants. Here he discovers that Thrym claimed Mjolnir, and when Loki confronts him about this theft, Thrym demands that Freya is given to him in exchange for the hammer. So Loki returns to Asgard, he tells Freya of this exchange, and she reacts with such fury that the palace of the gods shakes on its foundation, and her necklace, Brisingamen, falls to the ground. 
She says, most lustful indeed should I look to all if I journeyed with thee to the giant's hall. So instead of trading Freya for the hammer, the gods hatched a hilarious scheme. They dressed Thor in Freya's clothes and placed her prized necklace around his neck. I want to interrupt for a second and say, here we have Thor, the ultimate in masculinity, cross-dressing. I'm just going to leave that there for everybody to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And also Loki, he's dressed as Freya's maid. Of course, Loki is not depicted as a very masculine type of character, but another cross-dresser. Drag is cool. We like drag. Drag is awesome. And it can be funny and it can be sexual and it can be a lot of different things. It's an art form. And in this case, they are doing drag to protect another goddess in their community. So it is as ancient as the Norse gods are. In order to sneak in undetected, because Thor has a beard and he is a very masculine god, they covered his face with a bridal veil and that allows them to get into Thrym's hall. So they rode to Jotunheim on Thor's goat-driven chariot. And when Thrym sees them coming, he instructs his servants to decorate the hall for a wedding. Thrym brags to who he thinks is Freya about all the cows and gemstones that he owns and how she will be very happy with him because that's what women want, cows and gemstones. Yeah. I mean, it's not its not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. <laughs> so at the wedding feast, Thor, dressed as Freya, Eats an entire ox, eight salmon, three barrels of mead, and the entire wedding cake. This is both surprising and impressive to Thrym. And Loki explains that in anticipation and excitement for the wedding, the bride fasted for the previous eight days. Then Thrym wishes to kiss his bride, and he lifts the veil. He jumps back upon seeing Thor's fiery red eyes. And Loki explains that in anticipation and excitement for the wedding, the bride has not slept for the previous eight days. So now Thrym must fulfill his end of the bargain, and he requests for his servants to bring out Mjolnir, lay it on the bride's lap, to bless her. When Thor has his hammer back, he leaps up and kills the giant and everyone in the hall. And that is the story of Thor returning Mjolnir and saving Freya from having to marry a giant. There's another story which also shows Freya being coveted by the giants, where a giant wants to marry her And there has to be another scheme where they prevent him from fulfilling his end of the bargain. Loki gets pregnant as a horse. He becomes a mare in this. Just as an aside, Loki gets pregnant, which I think is also an interesting story. People who identify as men can be pregnant. But this is how we get Slyfnir, which is the eight-legged horse that Odin rides, is uh, birthed from the time when Loki was a horse. (laughs) And then the last story that I wanted to mention is actually how Freya got the necklace that is talked about that Thor wears when he goes to Thrym's house. This one is actually recorded by Christian priests. So there is some sanitization of the story and it depicts Freya as more of a promiscuous concubine to Odin rather than his beloved wife. But in it, she does have an affair which she does frequently in a lot of the stories she's mentioned in. In order to get the necklace, she sleeps with the four dwarves who are making it because she loves the finer things. That's part of her story is she loves the, she loves shiny things (laughs) and she loves sex and love. She gets the necklace. And I think it's important just to recognize the way that at least in this case, the Christian writers 
were kind of trying to belittle and disempower a woman who was really powerful to the Norse and Germanic societies. Now a word from our sponsor. Welcome witches. Looking for a magical getaway? Look no further than the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic for an unparalleled experience of the mysterious. This enchanting space houses one of the world's largest collections of items relating to witchcraft, the occult, and magic, with over 3,000 objects from around the world. Since 1960, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic has intrigued visitors with its collections of charms, curses, herbs and healing, and sea witchcraft. Join us for workshops, lectures, and special events to fuel your curiosity, from spellcasting demonstrations to interactive exhibits exploring the history and lore of witchcraft. This museum in the picturesque Cornish village of Boscastle is sure to bewitch you. Immerse yourself in a world of enchantment and mystery. Some of the most popular items are magical tools such as athames, wands, and other Wiccan items. Objects which were used for scrying such as black mirrors and crystal balls and a collection of protection talismans made by soldiers in the trenches of World War I. Learn about the history of magic and witchcraft and uncover ancient secrets in the extensive library with over 7,000 books and an archive of documents. Make the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic your destination this season. It's sure to be an unforgettable experience. Food, drinks, and dogs are not allowed in the museum. <laughs> and now back to your regularly scheduled programming. I will talk about Aphrodite's correspondences and then add any that might be different for Venus. Aphrodite is the goddess of love and beauty, so she is often represented as a exceedingly beautiful and youthful woman, and she's often represented as scantily clad or even completely nude. Her attributes include her enchanted girdle and a mirror, which if you if we think about Venus, the symbol for Venus is a circle with a plus underneath it, which represents a mirror and its handle that you can hold it. And her favorite animals included birds, such as the dove or swallow. And she's often shown in the company of her son, Eros, which is the personification of love, the Roman equivalent being Cupid. Eros is usually depicted as a young Young man, the Romans changed him for Cupid to be a naked baby with wings. Aphrodite is worshipped primarily as the goddess of erotic love and women, so she was honored in connection with sex, marriage, and childbirth. She's often worshipped by women and is usually considered the patron of prostitutes or sex workers. Because of her origin story, she usually protects sailors at sea. She's especially associated with male goats. And then also in addition to the doves and swallows, she's also seen with swans. The swans are often pulling her chariot or serving as her messengers. Another one of her sacred animals is the tortoise. Her sacred plants include apple, rose, myrtle, and poppy. I would also throw the myrrh tree in there as well because one of her stories 
deals with Mura, which is a woman who didn't want to get married. So she challenged her suitors to a race. The one who could beat her was the one that she would marry. And so one of her suitors tricked her by dropping golden apples after him and she would stop to pick them up and eat them, which slowed her down. So he was able to win the race. And when he won and she realized that she had to marry him, she turned into a mertry. So for Venus, the Romans really liked the fact that she came from the sea. The very famous picture of her in the seashell coming out of the sea is titled The Birth of Venus, not Aphrodite. So the Romans used a lot of seashells to represent Venus, but that appears to be the only big difference between Aphrodite and Venus. A lot of the same attributes for Aphrodite can be used for Venus as well. For working with Freya and Frigg, whichever name you prefer, she's usually depicted with long hair, generally blonde, sea-colored eyes that are very deep and blue in color. So that's another similarity. She's often depicted as very voluptuous, and that is why she's often hypersexualized in art and text. And like Aphrodite and Venus, she's typically totally nude in statues and paintings. But in most of the stories about her, she's wearing that feathered cloak that I mentioned that Loki used. So feathers, can be used as a symbol for Freya. And if you wanted to make a coat out of feathers, that would be a sight to behold. Practicing witchcraft in general is a good way to work with Freya because she is a powerful witch. As I mentioned, she practiced satyr. And there is uh, some reconstructionists who have reconstructed <laughs> satyr. So you could research that if you're interested in learning more about this practice. A lot of it involves using yarn and other textiles. So doing crafts involving these things like crocheting or knitting or cross-stitching or sewing, any of those things would be a way to work with Freya to honor her. And then symbols are things like the spindle that goes with the spinning wheel or the spinning wheel as well. Other symbols of Freya, that necklace that I mentioned in my story is very special to her. So wearing a statement piece, a big necklace of some kind. Animals that are thought to be within Freya's domain include cats, boars and swine, falcons, ladybugs, rabbits, and horses. And so anything that comes from those things could be used as a way to work with Freya, like fallen cat whiskers, cat hair, feathers, as I mentioned, boar's hair, or a little like figurines of these types of animals. Volunteering at local animal shelters or animal sanctuaries where they take in rabbits, pigs, horses, or cats and dogs and things like that, either volunteering or working at these places actually adopting these types of animals into your home and taking care of them in your home. And since she is the goddess of love and beauty, doing glamour magic, sex magic, doing love rituals, anything like that would be good opportunities to work with her, to call her into your magic. Wearing perfume, doing again that like glamour magic, making a ritual of doing your own makeup or moisturizing or doing a bath ritual of some kind. Specifically doing things on Fridays, as I mentioned, this is Freya's day or Frigg's day or Venus and Aphrodite day. <laughs> but you could also do things like writing poems or songs, participating in the arts in general, doing paintings, especially things that have to do with love. So writing like a love poem to somebody that you want to woo. Using the runes is a good way to communicate with Freya. The runes come from the same culture as Freya. So 
She understands that language more than other divination. And doing self-care is one of my favorite ways to work with Freya. I find it very rewarding to invite Freya into this practice and especially to devote my Fridays to self-care. If you're going to call Freya into your magic, some other things that you might use, uh, some crystals include rose quartz, amber, tiger's eye, carnelian, citrine, emerald and jade metals like silver gold and copper colors that are important to freya include pink white and green plants like primrose holly hemp mugwort or any flower are in her dominion and fruits like strawberries apples and raspberries as well as any foods that are considered aphrodisiacs of course so this episode is brought to you by rhodonite Rhodonite is a pink or red stone. It is generally mottled, which means that it's flecked with black inside of those reddish pink parts. And it's generally small when you find it. And most of the time, if you find it in a store, it's tumbled rather than raw, but it can be found raw as well. It's pretty common. You can find it pretty easily in most stores. It is mined in Spain, Russia, Sweden, Germany, Mexico, and Brazil. Rhodonite is a passive stone that corresponds with the earth element, Venus, and Taurus. It can be used for spells related to loving yourself and others more, increasing vitality, and finding support in times of hardship. Here are some ideas of ways to use rhodonite in your witchcraft practice. You could carry the stone with you or wear it as jewelry, as a talisman of strength and support, especially during vulnerable times. You could also place rhodonite in your home to amplify feelings of self-worth and esteem. You can add it to spell jars or charm bags with the intention of increasing feelings of happiness and joy, or include it in a crystal grid focused on bringing harmony to your relationships. Yay! Next week, we will be looking at our lives through the lens of the blank runestone, which is quite a controversial inclusion to the Elder Futhark. So there's some conflicting ideas about whether this stone even matters, if you have to use it. A lot of the time it indicates something that's not something for you to know yet, but then some people just like throw that stone out of their rune set. So <laughs> we'll be talking about this and what it means to us next week when we come back. And if you have a story that you want to share about the blank rune stone, tell us your opinions about it. <laughs> Please send us a voicemail to we listen at talkwitchcraft.com. You can find out more about this episode by going Going to mumblesandthings.com slash blog slash 087. Join us next week when we talk about Gemini. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you're notified every time we put a new episode out and help other witches find this show by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at the account at Mumbles and Things. And if you have any other tips to add, tell us about it in the Talk Witchcraft Forum in the Mumbles Academy community. And don't forget to share this episode with your witchy friends and followers. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. By the way, did you know, sorry, total tangent. I love it. On Uranus are noxious gases. Uh -huh. And they have recently discovered that... The gases are made of methane ammonium, which are literally the smells of farts and pee <laughs> <laughs> on the planet Uranus. <laughs> it, it can't catch a break. That's hilarious. <laughs>
this is also a tangent on a tangent. My math teacher in eighth grade, he went to Purdue University, I think, P-U, and their colors were brown and yellow. Amazing. (laughs) 